I have to say that I found Margie's solo in that anthem particularly powerful. And when you know something of her and David's story, it was made all the more poignant. I was blessed by your ministry. Thank you. I want to welcome you this morning to our second service of the weekend. Last night we had a chapel full of folks who were gathered here, and uh, you can continue to pray for that little church in the big church on Saturday nights. And a reminder that if you can't be here and worship for some reason on a Sunday morning, you are now without excuse. I mean it. So I'm going to expect to see you on Saturday night, for I shall surely be there myself. I want to start my message this morning by asking a hypothetical question. Let's say that you are one of 12 siblings. Any of you here, one of 12 or more? Right here, you are one of 12? So let's say that your dad decided to buy a brand new Mustang for one of your brothers. And nothing for the rest of you, bupkis, you know, not a, not a paddle car, nothing. What would be the cry of, on the lips of every one of those 11 siblings? That's not fair. That is not fair. And what is the cry of every parent who hears that cry from their children? Life's well, not fair, right? Life's not fair. Well, the guy that we're going to talk about this week, that we're studying this week, could have written the book title, Life is Not Fair. His name is Joseph. We're beginning uh, these last couple of weeks a journey, a year-long journey through what we're calling the story. It is a, an abridged version of the Bible, big, big, big chunks of scripture that have been put into about 400 pages. For those of you who have never read the whole Bible, here's your chance to, to get a start on it. And we're looking at the high points, the, the landmarks, the great characters and themes of, of Scripture. By the way, someone asked, are there readings if we get behind? There's a bookmark that was available in the Resource Center that has all of the daily readings if you wanted to break it down that way. And there's a story resource page on our website. So you can go and download anything that you need to help you in this. Anyway, that's the journey that we've begun. I want to just ask right now, here's our moment of accountability. And I'm watching you. How many read chapter 2 this last week? Awesome. Look at that. That's great. My sweetheart church. I'm so proud of you. You're doing your homework or at least you're lying to me and making me feel about better about that. Let's talk a little bit about what has brought us to this point. We begin, of course, with the story of creation. God, the eternal God out of his own purpose and pleasure creates all that we see out of nothing. He speaks it into existence. And every time he creates something, what does he say about it? It is good. He creates this good creation. So we begin creation. And, and then, of course, the evil enters into creation. And uh, Adam and Eve believe the lie that God doesn't really love them, that God is holding back on them. And so they are expelled from the garden. The relationship with God is, is broken. And we call that horrible moment in human history what? The fall. So we have creation and then the fall, and then for the rest of the story, it is the arc of, of God's work to rebuild that relation, to restore that relationship. What do we call that? Redemption. So creation, fall, and the rest of the story is about redemption. And we saw how God begins to unfold that plan last week, didn't we, in the story of Abram. He appears to Abram and says, I want you to be my man. I will be your God. Go to the place I'm going to show you. Trust me. Just go. 
And I'm going to create out of you a great nation. And through this nation, I'm going to bless the whole world, right? What made it ironic was ultimately he was 100 years old before God made good on that promise. His wife was 90. And yet God did make good on it, didn't he? And so he gave Abram and Sarah a son named, remember, Isaac, which means what? He laughs, laughter. He gave Isaac and Abraham and Sarah to Isaac. He gave Isaac two boys, Esau and Jacob. And he gave Jacob 12 boys and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. So we begin to see God's plan unfolding, right? He said, I'm going to make a great nation. And this is how it's starting to take place. And one of the boys of those 12 was a young lad named what? Joseph. Joseph. Jacob should have known better. He grew up in a household where his father showed favorites. In fact, he he connived and cheated and lied in order to get what he longed to have from his father, which was his blessing, didn't he? He should have known better what favoritism produces in a family. And yet he turned right around and did the same thing, didn't he? For Joseph was Jacob's favorite. He just couldn't help himself. He thought this kid was just the cat's meow. And every brother knew it. Every other brother knew it. He even gave Joseph some special gift. Remember what it was? A coat. A fancy, many-colored, ornamented coat. So not only was Joseph favorite, he got to wear something that reminded his brothers all the time that he was the favorite child. And that was really convenient for them all. And, and, and not only did he have this great coat, Joseph had something else going for him. He had dreams. God gave him dreams. Remember the dream? His dream was that one day all of the rest of his brothers would what? Mm-hmm. Bow down to him. Here's a note to you youngsters out there. If God ever gives you a dream that one day your siblings are going to bow down to you, keep it to yourself. But Joseph did not. How are you doing back there in the Shekinah glory section of the... I, I see you back there. The, the glory of the Lord is upon you. October 16th, that's the date. So we'll get that thing fixed, but just hang in there. It's just my radiant glory is hard to bear, I know, back there. Joseph didn't keep it to himself. And, uh, and how did that make his brothers feel? Well, Genesis tells us. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, what did they do? They hated him. And they could not speak a kind word. How many of you had a, a younger sibling? Raise your hand. How many f- were bugged by your younger sibling? Raise your hand. I had a si- young sister. Still, still do, as it turns out. And... Uh, she, she bugged me too. But this goes beyond being bugged. They despised Joseph. They held him in contempt. They couldn't find a good thing to say about him. So that's what sets us up for the text that we're going to read together. And this, that kind of lays the foundation for the rest of our story. The boys were out grazing the sheep somewhere. And, uh, and Jacob wants to check on how they're doing. So he sends Joseph out. To check up on the rest of his brothers. They loved that too, by the way. And that brings us to our story. So we turn to Genesis chapter 37. And I I want to just read this story to you. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said. 
Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him and bring him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat the meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brother, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. What a great guy. He is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. This is a story from God's great story. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, speak to us from this remarkable story of a remarkable man who remained faithful to you when life was unfair. For those of us who feel life to be unfair, may we be encouraged to trust you for the end of the story. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you imagine hating your brother that much? It's, it's really awful, isn't it? Can you imagine being able to sit down to your picnic lunch at, right beside the cistern into which you have just thrown your 15-year-old brother and you can hear him crying out? Can you imagine the terror of a 15-year-old who has just been turned on by his own flesh and blood and this horrible thing done to him? If you were that boy in that cistern, what would be the cry of your heart? Unfair. What did I do to deserve this? Unfair. In Egypt, Joseph is purchased by a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was a very powerful man in Pharaoh's court. He was the ruler of his guard. He hired him as a, he bought him as a, as a house slave, but it wasn't long before he saw how capable Joseph was. And so he began to promote him from the bottom of the heap. And pretty soon, he was at the top rung of power. Everything Joseph touched flourished. We read, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. By the way, that's a theme throughout this whole story. The Lord was with, the Lord was with. Pay attention to that when you're reading the story this week. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Pretty impressive, isn't it? The boy is making his way up in the world, 15 years old. And here he goes. Everything was going along fine until Potiphar's trophy wife set her eyes on Joseph. Turns out he was a good-looking kid, well-built. And she made it very clear, when you read in the Hebrew, very clear, that she wanted to have conjugal relations with the boy. 
He was appalled. He wouldn't have anything to do it. And we read this, this powerful statement. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Parenthetical moment. How I wish that we had more people who had that kind of moral courage in the face of sexual temptation today. We do not understand it to be ultimately a sin against God. Joseph saw it exactly to be that. There's a powerful statement of sexual purity here. Turns out, though, that the the cougar didn't give up. One day she caught him in the house when the servants were gone and she, she came after him again. In fact, she grabbed onto him and he literally ran away. A good way to deal with sexual sin, by the way. He literally ran away, but she held on to his garment and in her humiliation, when everyone returned, she held that garment up and said, here, here's the proof that this, this Hebrew slave tried to attack me. And so... Potiphar was naturally furious and he threw him into the dungeon. Actually, we discover that he threw him into a pit in the dungeon. Dungeons, pretty low. The pit in a dungeon, it doesn't get much lower than that. And so there he left him to rot. Why? Because he was faithful to his God. And he was faithful to his master. And the thanks that he got was to be moldering in that pit. Once again, you might ask the question, what would be the cry of the heart from the man who is in that pit? Unfair. This is not fair, God. What did I do to deserve this? Again, however, Joseph's talents were recognized. While Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. He was made responsible for all that was done there. So Joseph once again climbs up and and he begins to make himself useful. While he was in that role, two men were thrown into prison who had been former servants of Pharaoh. One was the wine taster, the cup bearer, and one was the baker. And while they were there, they each had disturbing dreams that they couldn't figure out. Remember, Joseph, he does dreams. And so he said, well, I'll try if the Lord might give me the interpretation. Wine taster told him his dream, and Joseph said, good news. Pharaoh's going to restore you to his court. You will be in his favor once again. Woohoo! Good for him. The baker heard that. He must have been very excited. Okay, tell me mine. Not so good news. He's going to cut off your head, hang your body on a tree, and the birds are going to peck off your flesh. That's literally in there. You'll read it. I'm not making that up. You got to wonder what the guy did to Pharaoh's croissants to make him that mad. That is one bad baker, honestly. And of course, it came out exactly as he predicted. And the wine taster promised, boy, when I'm back in in my position, I am going to remember you to Pharaoh. I will make an appeal on your behalf. It happened just as he said. The wine taster was restored. The baker was beheaded. And the wine taster, as soon as he got back into the lap of luxury, he forgot his promise, didn't he? And Joseph remained there moldering for another 10 years. If you continued in a a dungeon there, your promise, the promise forgotten to you, what would be the cry of your heart? Unfair, right? But one day Pharaoh had some dreams of his own. No one, none none of his, his sorcerers could figure out what he was dreaming. And so then the wine taster remembers. Oh yeah, there was this guy, this Hebrew, this, this guy in prison that, and so they pull him out, clean him up and 
trot him into the palace in front of Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dreams, and with the help of God, Joseph interprets. He said, well, here, Pharaoh, this is what it's going to look like. For the next seven years, your country is going to enjoy great bounty. And then the seven years after that, you are going to experience a devastating famine. So, mighty one, the the thing you ought to do would be this. Appoint a man who will oversee your country. And during these seven years of plenty, store away all of the grain. So when the time comes that you're facing this terrible famine, you'll be able to ride it out. Pharaoh said, sounds like a great idea. Guess who I'm going to put in the job? And so Joseph is appointed the chancellor, the second in command to Pharaoh, and he is the one responsible for overseeing this seven years of bounty. Sure enough, seven years later, the famine comes, and it begins to pinch even Canaan. Canaan, where his family was. Old man Jacob says to the boys, you go to Egypt. I hear they've got food there. Buy something and bring it back. And so unbeknownst, unbeknownst to them, they end up fulfilling the prophecy by bowing down in front of Joseph, the brother they don't even recognize, the brother they sold into slavery, begging for this food. Joseph recognizes them, of course. And after he puts them through several tests that you'll read about in the week to come, he finally comes to believe that they were genuinely changed men. And then we have the most moving reconciliation story that we might find in Scripture. He sends out everyone else from the, from the court, from the room, from the palace, the throne room. Sends them all out. And then he reveals himself to his brothers. And in doing so, he re- weeps so loudly that the entire household of Pharaoh hears his crying. He reveals himself to them. He receives them back. He forgives them. He, he restores them. He puts them in the most fertile part of Egypt. Sets them up. Gives them Pharaoh's protection. And Genesis closes finally with the the death of this great man, Joseph, with his family firmly ensconced in Egypt and beginning to flourish and become the nation that God promised to Abraham. That's the story. That's a big story in a small nutshell. 14 chapters worth. I want to ask this question. Why did the Holy Spirit decide that Joseph deserved 14 chapters of Scripture? That's a long story. What is it about this man that the Spirit said, you know what, I want my people to hear this story in its fullness. Of course, I don't know the mind of the Spirit, but I'll take a stab at it. I think Joseph is the finest man in the Bible. I think Joseph is the finest man in the Bible. Jesus aside... I mean, every other great character that we know anything about, every other major character fails spectacularly at some point, right? Adam falls. Abraham lies and doubts. Uh, Moses murders. David commits adultery and murders. Peter betrays. Paul murders. Every major character that we know anything about failed spectacularly. Joseph never did. Don't you find that remarkable? It might be said that that he was a bit braggadocious as a teenager, that he was a little bit arrogant there. If you're not going to hold that against him, then besides that, you have to be able to look at his life and say, there was never a case where he did not remain faithful to God. He 
had every opportunity to deny the Lord, every opportunity to fall into sin, every opportunity to abuse great power, and he never did it. He remained faithful to the Lord. And of all of the Bible characters, except for Job, no one had more cause to doubt God and deny God than did Joseph. Because his life really was not, what? Fair. Any of you been there? Any of you have been cheated and lost everything financially? Any of you been cheated on and lost your spouse? And lost your kids? Any of you been cheated out of great health? I received an email from a woman this week. She had no idea what I was going to be preaching on this week, but here's the situation. She wrote to tell me of a son who had just tried to take his life. And she has another son who's fighting cancer. And she wrote, quote, I have to tell you that when we had our family, I was not saying, gee, I hope one of them has cancer and the other one has mental problems. Can I say it doesn't seem fair? It doesn't seem fair, does it? It's not fair, is it? And there will be others of you here, most of you, I dare say, who will be able to say at some point in your life, it was not fair, and maybe that time is now. May I introduce you to the mentor who will walk us through what it means to deal with an unfairness of life and to rise to the occasion? I want to look at two things that I hope will prepare you better as you read through the 14 chapters of Joseph's story this week. And I invite you to do the whole thing. Go right to the Bible and read all 14 chapters because it's a great read. Here are two things that Joseph teaches us about how to deal with unfairness. You outwork it and you outlast it. You outwork it and you outlast it. Say that. You outwork it. And you outlast. First of all, Joseph teaches us to outwork unfairness. In Potiphar's house, Joseph said to himself, well, looks like I'm going to be a slave. And so if I'm going to be a slave, I am going to be the best slave that I can be. And he made himself invaluable to Potiphar to the point that he rises to the position of second in the household. Then when he is unfairly imprisoned, Joseph says to himself, well, it looks like I'm going to be a prisoner. If I'm going to be a prisoner, I'm going to be the best prisoner that I can be. And he made himself so invaluable to the warden that he rose to the position of the second most powerful person in that prison. If anyone had the right to call himself a victim, it was Joseph. And he refused to do it. He was bounced from pit to slave quarters to pit again. And it was unfair, wasn't it? But Joseph refused to feel sorry for himself. He surveyed his situation. He figured out what he had to do. And he outworked the unfairness. I heard this week from a friend who said, I realized today that I hate the guy I work for. I look at him. He is evil and untrustworthy. But I also realize that God has put me here and my job is to do the very best I can to serve this awful man. He's going to outwork the unfairness 
of this moment. It may not be fair that you never got your college degree because you had kids that came along. It may not be fair that others have received the promotion that you deserved. It may not be fair that the person you married is not the person you thought you married. It may not be fair. Fill in the blank. So you have two choices. You can mope and play the victim and remind yourself and everyone who will listen to you how unfair life has been. Or you can throw yourself into making the very best of a very crummy situation. At the end of every worship service, we pronounce these words from Colossians 3. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Life may not be fair. Life surely at some point will not be fair. And you might find yourself in the pits, maybe multiple pits. But when you decide that you're going to make the very best of that unfair situation, and when you do, you bring honor to Christ, and you elevate yourself. Joseph outworked his unfairness. He also outlasted it. He never gave up. He never stopped believing that God had something better in store for him. Not when his brothers betrayed him. Not when Potiphar's wife entrapped him. Not when the wine taster forgot him. Joseph just kept believing in God. And in the end, he outlasted, outran the unfairness. I think the greatest verse in the story of Joseph, maybe the greatest verse in the book of Genesis comes in chapter 50, the very last chapter, verse 20. The brothers are standing before him. His dad has just died. Now brothers are suddenly nervous again that this is going to be an opportunity for him to to get his vengeance now that dad is out of the way. And Joseph attempts to reassure them with these powerful words. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Let's read that together. You intended to harm me, But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many. By the way, do you see a glimpse of a scarlet thread there? Joseph lived thousands of years before the Apostle Paul ever wrote the book of Romans. But I'll bet that for Joseph, Romans 8.28 would have been his life verse. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's say it together. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This verse can be misused. We need to understand what this verse does not say. It doesn't say that everything is good. It doesn't say that all things are good and should be, you should be grateful for them. Because as a matter of fact, all things are not good. God created all things good, but ever since the fall, not all things are good in this creation. It is a broken creation. But the promise of God is that if we love him, if we continue to trust him, if we persevere with him, he will weave everything together. Both the triumphant times in our lives and those times of dreadful unfairness, he will weave them all together to accomplish his good purpose for our life. We may see it in this lifetime. We may not see it until we are on the other side of glory, but that is the promise. We hang in there. We wait and work and trust and pray and cry and cry out 
And we outlast the unfairness of life. Anita Baldwin could easily cry out unfair. Since 1997, Anita has had 14 hospitalizations, one about every other year. A broken leg, a bike accident that crushed both jaws, her nose, knocked out her teeth, and and crushed her chin. Then when they tried to restore it, they did it wrong, and they had to come back in and re-break her jaw and do it again. Then came a blown-out knee skiing, then a broken wrist, then breast cancer, then a botched hysterectomy, and a few weeks ago, a stroke. Anita told me, I feel like I lost my 40s. But she said, I think of Lot's wife. Do you remember Lot's wife? What was she not supposed to do? Look back or she turned to what? Pillar of salt. She said, I think of Lot's wife. God told her not to look back. Sometimes when we do, it just brings up bitterness and anger. And who wants to be around that? Anita told me, I no longer ask why. Now she said, I ask, what now? What now, Lord? I just keep looking forward and I keep listening. And the only thing that I have to say is, Lord, I choose to follow you. I asked her, have you reached a point where we're like Joseph? You can see God worked all things for good. He, what was intended for evil, God worked for good. Have you reached that point? She said, absolutely. During the year that I was having fighting with cancer and on chemo, my son's room is right below our bedroom. And every night... I was throwing up, and he could hear me. And when I wasn't throwing up, I couldn't sleep, and so we play praise music. A year later, I was talking to Tyson, my son, and told him, I said, I've heard that these experiences are supposed to change you, and I'm not sure that I feel like I'm any different. Tyson stopped her and said, Mom, this is not about you. He said, you have no idea. As I've watched you walk through what you have faced, you have strengthened my walk with Christ. And she said, in that moment, all was right. All was right. Anita would be the first to tell you that she didn't do this by her own strength or grit or determination. That ran out about seven hospitalizations ago. She will tell you that the way she has survived and thrived through all of this is the spirit of Christ who lives in her. And if ever there's one of whom it could be said he was treated unfairly, surely it was the Lord Jesus himself, yes? Which brings us back to why I think Joseph has so much ink. Here's the second reason. Because I don't think that you will find a better example in the Bible of of what we were going to discover later in Jesus. Joseph is the the type of Christ. Again and again and again, we see whispers, glimpses of what Jesus would be in the life and story of Joseph. May I just give you a few of them? And as you're reading through, you pay attention for more. But the ways in which Joseph reminds us of the Jesus who is to come. Both had the name that means Savior. Both were prophesied to rule over all. Both were separated from their beloved fathers. Both went into and returned from Egypt. Both were despised by their brothers. 
Both were sold for the price of a slave. Both showed great love and forgiveness. Both were discovered alive, surprisingly. Both were the sole source of life for all humanity. Both were unrecognized by their brothers. Both were reunited to their brothers. Both ended up seated in a place of highest power. And before both, every knee bowed in worship, honor, and adoration. And here's one more way. Both had horrible, evil things done to them. Things that they did not deserve. Things that were manifestly unfair. But that in the end, God turned to good. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. If you are in a season of your life right now where you're getting your butt kicked, if you're in a season when you say, that resonates with me, life does not seem fair. And I urge you this week, read every chapter of Joseph's story. And as you do, listen for the whispers. Look for the glimpses of the scarlet thread that point to the one who promised his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world.